You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Jose Mendoza. Jose is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and co-editor of Radical Philosophy Review. His research interest is in moral and political philosophy, philosophy of race, and Latin American philosophy. Recently, his attention has been focused on the issue of immigration with the aim of providing a philosophical defense of immigrant rights. In this episode, we talk immigration and whiteness, open borders, the undocumented, and much more. Hello, Jose, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? Having me. I'm great. Thank you. Super. Jose, how did you get interested in philosophy? Oh, man, this is like the most indirect way of getting into a discipline, I think. <laughs> um, at a, uh, so let me, let me try to give you the short version of it. Um, All right. Basically, I was an activist. Uh, some, I grew up very Catholic, and, and some, at some point in, in high school, I got really upset about the death penalty. Being, being Catholic, I was very anti-death penalty, and, and that just sort of led to me seeing a lot of other injustices in the world. Both, both my parents were also undocumented. And so there was there was that as well. Me seeing people work very hard and and, and have a hard time, you know, making it. And uh, so all, all these things sort of culminated at a point that I became a, a big activist in college. I was at a community college. I was a big activist, and I basically joined the first organization that would have me, and that I felt sort of sympathetic with, which was the International Socialist Organization. Okay. And and they would sell newspapers. And uh, and that's what we had to do. So once, twice a week, you would be out, you know, either on the street or on campus selling newspapers. And the thing about selling a socialist newspaper is that the only people that are going to talk to you are people that either A, already agree with you, or B, want to pick a fight with you. And as an 18, 19-year-old, you know, kid, I, I kept losing arguments. <laughs> and when I would take a philosophy class, I noticed my philosophy professors were really good at arguing. It was, it was really as simple as that. I'm like, man, they're really good at arguing. It was sort of like uh, if you get picked on in school, you take up like a martial art. So I was getting like intellectually picked on, I felt like. And so I wanted to take like an intellectual martial art. And I, and I thought it was philosophy. I was actually a sociology history major, okay. like, you know, like a good Marxist. And uh, it was really through there. And, and, and then I wanted to learn about Marx. And someone said, look, if you want to learn about Marx, you've got to, um, you've got to learn Hegel. So I took a class on Hegel, had no clue what was going on in that class. I asked the professor, I said, look, I've got no clue. Class is almost done. I've got no clue what's going on. He said, well, the thing is you have to read Kant. You can't understand Hegel until you read Kant. Lucky for me, the next term there was a Kant class. So I took the Kant class. Same thing. I, I, I don't understand heads or tails. Go to that professor. That professor's like, well, you've got to understand British empiricism and, and this, you know, kind of continental rationalism and, and so on and so forth. And Next thing I knew, I, I literally just had a BA in philosophy, just trying to be an activist and, 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 and a good Marxist. That's quite an interesting story. So you kind of went to philosophy to try to get the, the tools needed to be a good Marxist. To be a good Marxist activist. Yeah, that's, that's essentially what happened. And, and, uh, and, and just kind of fell in love with, with a little bit of the history of philosophy as well. And, uh, and yeah, before I knew it, I just had enough requirements and so I just kind of kept pursuing it and, and liked it. So but that's how I got that's how I got interested in 
philosophy was. I think I think it's a very indirect way. I think a lot of people are maybe they like philosophy first, and then and then they become activists. Whereas there's very few of us who are activists who do and then fall into philosophy. So this is election season, and uh, what we're hearing is is lots of immigration rhetoric. Why do why do people think immigration, particularly Mexican immigration, is a huge problem in the U.S.? Well, I think there's two answers to this. There's there's the the short sort of my, what I would call the short myopic answer, and and that basically runs something like this. There's there's 11 million undocumented immigrants. Something like 80% of these uh, undocumented immigrants are from Latin America. And out of that 80%, something like 75% of them are, are from Mexico. And out of the remaining 25%, a, a significant portion are from from Central America. And so for most people in their imagination, just being Latin American is close enough to being Mexican, definitely Central American. And, and as I said, a significant percentage are, are from Mexico. Um so that's the, the sort of simple answer, but, but, but I call it the simple myopic answer for, for a couple of reasons. Well, for one thing, since around 2008, 2009, and this is actually, I, people are surprised to hear this, uh, net migration from Mexico is, is at zero. So that means there's as many uh, Mexican immigrants going back to Mexico as are coming into the United States. Uh, the other reason why it's kind of myopic is that about 50% of undocumented immigrants don't unlawfully cross the border. What, what they typically do, almost 50% of them, is, is they have visas and they tend to overstay their visas. And so this focus, this kind of obsession with the Mexican border is, I think, wrongheaded on, on two accounts. One is that the, the people who are crossing through the Mexican border aren't actually Mexicans at this point because there's kind of a, a net zero. And, and B, because a lot of people who are undocumented don't, don't even cross through uh, unlawful channels. They, they, they simply overstay their visa. But also, like what what this does, they call it myopic. This this response because it, it ignores um, the history of of, uh, of Mexican immigrants and how Mexican immigrants, the, the 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 undocumented Mexican worker, was actually a construction of a uh, of U.S. policy. Now that's I know it was kind of long winded, but that that's sort of the short answer. I think the the larger answer, like why people are in particular upset about Mexican immigration, why they see it as a huge problem, it, it, it's it's more of like an existential answer. Um, the United States is undergoing a, a sort of major demographic shift. Uh, I've heard uh, something something like around by 2050, uh, the U.S. is going to be a, a majority minority right. country. And, and, and immigration is really seen as kind of a driver in, in, in this shift of, of demographics. And so I think uh, maybe another way of maybe phrasing the same question you just asked me is, is basically why do – this is to use uh, Ron Sundstrom's phrase, right? Why, why do people fear the browning of, uh, of America? And that's more of the existential answer to this question. Answer that question is more of the existential component. And I think it's – again, which I typically do make things in two. Uh, I think it's two things. It, it's, a, it's the sort of loss of American culture, loss of American identity. And if you ask people – I mean, one way is it's sort of the very xenophobic, racist view, but but the other thing is people will say it's it's the glue that this 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 culture is the glue that holds a community together. Um, to to use Donald Trump's phrase, right? It's what makes America great. Mm-hmm. But there but there's also this like ease. The people people when you're part of the dominant culture, 
if you ever traveled, you'll you'll notice this. You travel, and, and, and it's almost like you don't understand what's going on in your surroundings. You don't feel very comfortable anyway. And I think this is what what a lot of uh, white Americans are feeling. They, they Things like, you know, press one for English, press two for Spanish, it's not that big of a deal. But for them, it's it's sort of like uh, it's the beginning of, of not being comfortable in uh, – in, in, in one's own culture. And, and, and the second part of this larger sort of answer is I, I think attached to this is, is a loss of real material wealth, real opportunities, real advantages that for a long time white Americans uh, uh, enjoyed. I mean, if you look historically in the United States, um, we, what we call less educated, so people with like maybe a high school diploma or less, if, if you were white and had a high school diploma or, or not even the equivalent of, there was always – avenues for you to, to get to the middle class, either yeah. through manufacturing, uh, through through meatpacking, other service industries. And, and now when they look around, um, they see that these, these jobs are either A, gone, or B, immigrants are doing these jobs for, for basically b- below uh, low livable wages. And so what a lot of these folks, and I think when you, when you, when you want to know well, why are people gravitating towards Trump, it's these folks think open borders in any respects, whether it's for trade, services, material, or, or open open borders for just for immigrants. They see this kind of opening of borders as as the cause of 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 why they can no longer move into the middle class. And um, just before the election started, Ann Coulter, she's like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's usually on Fox News. She came out with a book called she called, she came out with a book called Adios uh, Adios America. Like goodbye to America, and the subtitle sort of summarizes all I've been sort of clumsily trying to say, which is she calls it the left's plan. So the left, by that she means people who are pro-immigrant, plan to turn America into a into a third world hellhole, right? And then that's sort of how they see immigration, anyway. But but I think I don't agree with it. But that's that's the those are the worries that are that are driving this, and why in particular Mexican immigrants get the Mexican immigrants get the brunt of this. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit more about borders. Do do legitimate states have a presumptive right to control immigration? Um, well, the, so philosophically, I'm I'm on the camp that says that they, that they do not. I'm I'm on the open borders camp. But the problem, and this is sort of the problem with with doing philosophy and then, and then trying to translate to public policy. The, the the problem with a position like mine is that I'm swimming upstream. Uh, most people think that there is that, that legitimate states have some right to uh to restrict immigration. And if you want to actually do public policy or, or influence public policy, sometimes you have to assume that. And, and, and that's what I do in my work. I, sometimes I, I assume that and try to see what sort of immigrant rights um, I can derive from that. But, but the short answer to that is, is philosophically, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think there are – I think the, the, the indiv- individuals have a right to freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. And I also think for issues of equality, I think borders perpetuate – and also create unjust global inequalities. That's that's sort of what they do. These these borders are now sort of like uh, like, like like the new ways of of, um, of of keeping sort of feudal privilege. You know, keeping certain groups of people with privilege and and denying it to others. You alluded to this just a while ago, and I want to kind of explore this a little bit more. So the, the question is, how has immigration controls in the U.S. historically helped to construct what you call whiteness? And function to help maintain white supremacy. How has it done that? So this, I've got a really long answer for this. So just jump in anytime you want to <laughs> interrupt me because I can just kind of go. This is this is a 
I mean, this is a story now. So there's again, my as I do make things into two or three. So there's there's two ways. The first one was was is very directly, uh, and 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 this is almost uncontroversial when you look at the history of the United States. Um, a couple things happened in 1790. In 1790, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's when all the states in the Union finally ratified the, the U.S. Constitution. So we went from being, you know, this, uh, this, this loose confederation to now the United States of America Constitution signed. One of the first acts that, that got passed um, was the Naturalization Act. And the Naturalization Act basically laid out what, well, what is it going to take for someone who's not only a citizen of the United States but wishes to become a citizen, what do they need to do? And the first restriction they put in there was that only whites, only whites could be um, could be eligible for naturalization. And from then on, what you see is that restrictions on citizenship and, and admission are really closely tied to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And this applies not just to immigrants. You see this in the in the 1857 Dred Scott decision, right? That what we're told there is it doesn't matter how many generations you've been here, if you have you know African ancestry, you cannot be a citizen of the United States because you are not white. Uh, this continues on even after the Civil War, even after Dred Scott is basically o- overturned because of the um, Civil War amendments. Beginning in 1875, you start getting these Chinese Exclusion Acts. And really, those are the, the 1875 Page Act is, is the first um, restrictive immigration act. So it was almost a 100 years after the United States is, is, is founded that you get the very first restriction on immigration. So it takes about 100 years for that to happen. And, and again, this restriction is based on race. It's based on, you know, basically people who don't want Asian immigrants. And, and that starts to expand. By 1917, they, they've got what's called the Asiatic Barred Zone. Now, you might wonder why, why, why did they start with an Asiatic Barred Zone to begin with? And, and part of the issue was that Japan was, was an imperial nation. And so Japan actually kind of pat itself on the back and said, look, we defeated a white nation in war. They, they defeated the, um, the Russians uh, at the turn, of the, uh, the turn of the 20th century. And so what instead of having a, an exclusion act with Japan, the United States had a gentleman's agreement. And that was an agreement that Japan would, would, would voluntarily restrict its immigrants from coming into the United States. But by, by 1917, they, they made that into a law. They had a whole Asiatic part zone that went up like halfway through, um, through India. Uh, by, by 1924, they had national origins quota. They decided that people from, from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, those, those immigrants were, were not white. And so they've also, they got, they had restrictions. And you, you see this in, in Supreme Court cases, uh, Takeo Ozawa. Uh, and, and Bagat Sintin, those, those cases in, in the first one, uh, uh, Takeo Ozawa, the Supreme Court ruled that, that only Caucasians, people of the Caucasus uh, race or Caucasian race from the Caucasus region, region, um, were eligible for immigration. And, uh, in the second case, Bagat Sintin was part of a high Hindu caste. And so he actually was technically part of the Caucasian race. But the um, the justice in that case looked at him and said, "But just by looking at you, we can tell that you you've got the wrong culture." Hmm. So it's not just um, biological, anthropological race; it's also ethnicity that counts as making you non-white. And and so these restrictions sort of directly, basically linked. Uh, the restrictions were were linked to, to non-whiteness. Now there's 
So what, what really what happens is, is then, so that's very direct. The, that is in the law. The law is explicitly based. But then we enter World War II. And the thing about World War II is that we're fighting Nazis. And not only that, but China, who we had these exclusion acts for, you know, 50 some odd years now, 60 years, um, is now an ally. And so this is really inconvenient, right? You can imagine you're fighting a war against fascists. Fascism has this view that there are certain groups of people who are inferior and need to be eliminated. And then people look at the United States immigration policy and say, well, in a way, you guys aren't that different. Yeah. And it's also inconvenient that one of our allies, we have these very, you know, anti-restrictionist uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, policies against them. So beginning in, in, in like 14, 14, I'm sorry, 1943, um, the, the restrictions on, on Asian immigrants is, is lifted. Uh, by 1952, again, because of, you know, not wanting to be associated with, with, with the sort of the Nazis and, and fascist uh, Germany, uh, we get rid of the, um, the racial restriction in the Naturalization Act. By 1965, we abolish national origin quotas. So it's looking pretty good. It's looking like we're making progress. But what ends up happening in 1965 is that for the first time in U.S. history, we have restrictions on the Western Hemisphere. So before mm -hmm. 19, and people were all surprised to learn about this. Before 1965, there were no restrictions on countries of the Western Hemisphere. Okay. So there was basically open borders with, with Mexico. Uh, in 65, we, we get restrictions. Now, this becomes a problem because during the war, especially, we had a Bracero program with Mexico. So we had a, an agreement of, of, with Mexico sending us workers at the height of the Bracero program you had about half a million braceros yearly coming to the United States and working. And when, when, uh, when, when the national origin quota got abolished, they put a cap of about 20,000 uh, immigrants per country. Now, you can imagine, so the years leading up to 1965, on average, Mexico was sending somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250,000 um, migrant workers. So just imagine what happens if you try to cap 250,000 migrant workers at 20,000. Yeah. Right? The, 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 the remaining, you know, 230 don't just stop coming. They just become undocumented. And so this becomes the history of how Mexican immigrants started becoming the, the undocumented immigrant, uh, the face of, of undocumented immigration. Uh, it's, only, it's only 10 years after that, too. That this that a case goes before the Supreme Court, and it's uh, it, it's basically a racial profiling case. Um, it's called Brigonte, uh, Brigoni Ponce, um, United States versus Brigoni Ponce in 1925. And what's at stake is the Border Patrol basically stopped this guy because he looks Mexican. That's the only reason they they say, look, we, why'd you pull him over? We pulled him over because he looks Mexican. And what the Supreme Court says is, well, look. Since 1965, we've had this dramatic increase in undocumented immigrants from Mexico. So it makes sense that we use Mexico as, an, as a sort of nationality, right? <laughs> to, if, 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 if you, we can use your Mexicanness as a reason for pulling you over because of the dramatic increase in, in undocumented immigrants. And what you then start to see is how enforcement of a policy that doesn't basically adhere to uh, social and historical circumstances starts to create what we talked about before, this, this close connection between 
being Mexican, being immigrant, and being, you know, quote unquote, illegal. These three things start to become synonymous. And, uh, it, it, it moves on from there to, to 1986, where you get the, for the first, 1986 was the first time that you had employer sanctions. And that means that if you, before 1986, if you employed an undocumented worker, there was no, there was nothing wrong with it. There was maybe maybe someone, someone might think morally wrong, but there was nothing legally wrong with employing somebody, even if you knew they were undocumented. After 1986, that was against the law. There was a fine and so forth. But now you start seeing the enforcement of uh, of immigration laws at the workplace. Uh, in 1994 was the first big. This was a state law. It's called Proposition 187 in California. Now you start seeing state trying to enforce immigration law in the sphere of social services. What, what, what Prop 187 did or would have done, uh, got, it, the, the courts uh, found it unconstitutional, was it was going to deny social services to um, undocumented immigrants and to the children of undocumented immigrants. Hmm. So again, so, so part of the reason they found this unconstitutional is because it was, it was going it to affect citizens. Yeah. But notice we, what it starts to do is enforcement now starts creeping into the workplace. Enforcement, immigration force starts creeping into social services. Uh, by 1996, they, they passed a federal law that's the federal version of things like Arizona's Prop 187. They're, they're called 287G agreements. Uh, the 1996 law introduced what, what most of people who work on, 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 my, on immigration and migration call crimmigration, so the criminalization of immigration. And that really has three parts. Um, what it did is it started making certain crimes, or it started expanding, sorry. There, there were always one or two crimes. It started expanding greatly the list of crimes that you could commit that would make you deportable. Um, it then started also making certain immigration violations into criminal offenses. So before, if you crossed, you know, you unlawfully crossed the border, um, you would get something the equivalent of like a parking ticket. But what they started doing now is if you get deported, and you come back again, you are now subject to actual jail time. So they started criminalizing migration. And what the 1996 law also did was it started using strategies that are normally used for criminal enforcement, right? The the raids and these sorts of things. They started expanding these sorts of tactics into the enforcement of immigration. So that's why people call this crimigration. And, and what we've seen since then, especially at the, at the, at the local and, and state levels in places like Arizona, Georgia, Arkansas, South Carolina, all the anti-immigrant laws that they pass, they're all versions of, of this. They, they, they're expanding enforcement beyond the border into all these different areas. And, 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 it, and the strategy is, is, is called, a, you know, a, a attrition through enforcement, right? Enforcing immigration laws in all these places such that you make the lives of immigrants so bad that they um, that they want to self-deport. Now, this is, I think, and we can keep talking about this, but I won't put it out there. This is wrong on many different levels, not just the way that, um, not just the way they treat, you know, quote-unquote immigrants or undocumented immigrants, but these, the, these enforcement strategies and mechanisms also, you know, uh, they also catch citizens right so so not it's not it's not that all citizens are, are subject to, to these sorts of enforcement laws right? it's only particular citizens and and in this way if, if you go back to the story that I've told you that I began with you start seeing how immigration restrictions and immigration enforcement it's not so much that they create whiteness as much as they create non-whiteness mm-hmm. and so a group of people Latino Latinas who 
as a group or, 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 you know, they're a very, they're not a homogenous group. The, within the Latino community, you have a variety of races, like ranging from white to black and, and indigenous. Now this group, in a sense, in, in its entirety becomes non-white. You talked about earlier, um, alluded to when, when I asked you about, you know, why do people consider Mexican immigration in particular a problem? And you talked about kind of this, you know, this notion of a fear of eradication of, of whiteness, right? And so some ways in the U.S., maybe that could explain the xenophobia that is currently happening. But we know xenophobia is also happening in other parts of the world, right? Where people that look alike, right? Um, they are still stopping those people from entering to their, their particular country. So is it any way that you can explain beyond whiteness, which is a huge issue? What do you think is behind xenophobia? What are some other things that perhaps be behind xenophobia? And for those who are currently experiencing that, how can they overcome it? Oof, that's a really uh, good question. Um, so here's what I think. I mean, and I, and I don't know if it'll totally answer your question. I mean, part of it is when you focus on immigration justice, the way I do, um, it's not clear that if we were ever able to get immigration justice that we would necessarily get rid of xenophobia. Because I I think, uh, and this might be part of what's behind your question, I think think, um, immigration injustice, so the injustices that happen in immigration, are more uh, a symptom or a result of of xenophobia than the actually being a cause of xenophobia. And so a lot of my work is more like, uh, the, the, you know, like the doctors have this kind of Hippocratic oath, like first do no harm. Yeah. I think that's almost where I'm at at this point. So the way I look at it, things are so bad for immigrants that it's almost like we need to first sort of, uh, sort of do no harm, uh, prevent, you know, find principles, how we can argue against the kind of enforcement that, uh, that perpetuates and, and, and in a sense sort of creates xenophobia. But, I think xenophobia goes beyond immigration. We see this in a place like the United States. You see this after September 11th. There, there is an aspect that, that relates to immigration. But but groups, um, which is still kind of nebulous, I, I think the, the term I've heard is, is MEMSA, Middle, Middle Eastern, Muslim, uh, South, uh, Southeast Asian uh, Americans. Right. This, this is a group that, that probably didn't see itself as, as a group or some of these people might be, we might even consider white at some point. Yeah, and, and according to the census, they are white. They are white, right? So, so yeah, and so this is a group that, that that's now become, in a sense, non-white. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I think uh, I think it's definitely uh, issues of of um, not that in, in how should I put this about I'm trying to put this about I necessarily agree with it, but but people's fears of of, of you know insecurity, maybe that's the way to lack of of safety, right? And it could be done for political gain, right? Through the the, the there's this fear of, of, of terrorism, fear of, 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 of all these things um, can drive xenophobia. Uh, I'm assuming the people who follow Le Pen and, and these sorts of, of more um, xenophobic politicians, my gut feeling is it's not usually rich people. It's usually poor people. Okay. And so I think the feeling of, well, you know, we're, we're poor and it's been the opening of borders, both, you know, the, to let, you know, both letting businesses leave and, and still bring back their, their products and, and also opening the borders, having immigrants take, take these jobs. So I think those are, those might, you know, I think those might be the cause, insecurity and, and, and inequality. And, and those might, or though those are definitely larger issues than, than we can solve in immigration justice. I just think that there are ways, there are things that happen in immigration policy and immigration enforcement that perpetuate and, and create xenophobia. Dealing with xenophobia itself is, I think, it's just a much larger topic than 
than immigration justice, if that makes sense. Okay. Anytime I hear someone refer to Mexicans as illegals or aliens, I get very upset and I find it very, very problematic. And for those who still chooses to refer <laughs> to Mexicans as illegals or aliens, can you tell us what is problematic about using that language to describe them? So, well, for one thing, it's like it's, it's grammatically weird. We can always just yeah. start with that. Right? I mean, there's actions that are illegal. Um, it's weird to say that people themselves are are illegal. Um, but it, it, it's problematic in, in, in a couple ways. One, one way in particular is I think it hides a lot of the history that I, that I sort of tried very quickly. It's, it's, by the way, if people are, are interested in the, uh, in the more a really good historical account, uh, Aviva Chomsky's got this, uh, this great book um, called Undocumented. And there she traces out in more detail, gives you more facts and numbers, uh, the sort of history I, I, I try to give out. But what the, what the term illegal does, it tries to kind of hide all that. It's, it's very shorthand. It makes it seem as though, you know, the world began yesterday and, and these people just decided that they were going to, like, you know, not obey the law or something. So it turns them, it makes, it makes people who I think have been victimized by bad immigration policy, it, it transforms them into the people who are lawbreakers. Right? So they're the ones breaking the law. It's not that the law is, is sort of doing it in injustice. The current law is doing and injustice to them. So that would be the legal political philosopher in me answering that question. But, but the critical race theorist in me thinks that there's, there's something else happening here too. Um, um, uh, 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 Ian, Haney, Ian Haney Lopez calls this um, uh, dog whistle politics. And you see this in, in, in a lot of different communities. Um, you see this with Reagan. When, when Reagan said, you know, you have young bucks yeah. Or used their food stamps to to buy steaks and talked about welfare queens and their Cadillacs. He never he never used racial language or or, or color, but he was able to sort of uh, use certain code words that, in the imagination of, of of American whites, you know, the the picture that went you know in in their minds that lit up were were, were black men and 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 black women. And illegal, I think, functions in a similar way. Right. You don't need to, you don't need to say a, a, a racial or, or ethnic slur, but when you say illegal, you know who you're talking about. And and I so I think that so I find it problematic in, in, in that respect as well. Right? It's not just that it's be it's not just that it's used as a as a legal term. It's that it's being used as a as a kind of code word that uh, that denigrates a particular community. And what's what's even more bad, what's even worse about this, if you go to places like, you know, California, uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, these are places where, where, you know, basically Mexicans were living before that was part of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And so this idea that these people are, you know, somehow not true Americans is, 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 what, is what gets encapsulated in the, in the term illegal. And it makes me think, you know... <laughs> The nerve that that the settlers had the nerve to call other people illegals <laughs> or aliens, right? That's who they are, right? In some ways, yeah. so to call native people that is just very, very strange. Any people that is strange, but to call native people that is strange and not use it to refer to oneself is also very odd. Have you and I, and I forget the I think it's like a Native American and I forget who, but the, I saw a shirt and it was years ago. It's like a Native American chief or something, and the shirt says like who. Like who you call an illegal pilgrim or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of this is just the the imaginary in in in, in white America that that you know there is a particular you know thing, particular identity that is America, and that that's 
and, and, and part of the part of the part that's true is that it is changing. I don't know if it, but for them, it's changed that it's bad. And this is Donald Trump in, in some ways is very smart when he says, you know, let's make America great again. Right? He's 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 using the sort of like dog whistle politics. Like you know, you and I might not hear exactly what he's saying, and it might feel weird, but for other people, they know exactly what he's saying. There's a particular kind of America, and it's and it's disappearing. I'm glad you clear up for us the image that we have of a quote unquote undocumented people, because usually when people hear the word, they are thinking about people who have illegally crossed crossed the border. So I'm I'm very glad that you cleared that up. And just to to clarify once again, would you say that most people have just overstayed their visas and not necessarily have illegally crossed the border? Is that where you're? It's hard to get a clear number. Uh, it depends on 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 uh, basically the, the study you look at. It's somewhere between forty and and a little over fifty percent. So okay. close to close to half. But what's what is interesting about that is that, you know, even if you get Donald Trump's wall and you were somehow able to seal off, you know, any sort of any sort of unlawful crossing, all that would actually do is is increase, um, you know, visa overstays. Um, They're just, you know, some some people just can't even get a visa. But but that's actually my my dad uh, unlawfully crossed uh, uh, four times. He was deported three times. He, He unlawfully crossed four my mom never, you know, never never crossed the border unlawfully. Uh, she crossed with visas. She would come and work. She had like a tourist visa. You could come and, and do some shopping, but she would cross over on Sunday, Sunday night. She would work Monday through Friday, at, kind of like as a live-in na- nanny maid. And then on Friday nights, she would cross back. And, you know, they didn't have any way of really checking, so they just thought she was coming and, and doing shopping. But then when she, you know, she fell in love with my dad, and then one day she crossed, and and didn't cross back for for ten years. So so my mom never actually technically uh, unlawfully crossed the border. She just overstayed a a visa. I was I was recently watching. I've been on a dog whisperer internet uh, marathon. I don't know why, right? But I just keep watching the dog whisperer. And Caesar Milan, the guy who hosts the uh, the show, was talking about his experience of, of of crossing of crossing the border, and he crossed it illegally. And it was it was very um, interesting, right, to hear his story. And I wonder if you could just share with us for those who do decide to do it kind of the Caesar Milan way, right? Can you describe for us, uh, put us in the shoes of, of a Mexican migrant? Why are people willing to risk their lives to come to the U.S.? You alluded to this before, but I want you to kind of go into this in more detail. And what is their experience once arriving to the States? So, yeah, I mean, um, there are some really good documentaries out there. And I, and I would suggest that it, um, oh God, um, it's called Far From Home. I should have written some of these down. Um, there's some really good ones. Because, well, the thing is, it's also this group isn't isn't homogenous either. You, yeah. you you get a lot of children. You get a lot of a, a lot of people who are wanting to get reunited with their their spouses. Because one of the things that happened in the early 90s, it was some part of the story of enforcement, is that they, they ran a strategy at the border called prevention through deterrence. And so the idea was, was fairly simple. We have, this is what they kind of told themselves, we have limited resources, even if we have more money, which we'll get more money, they thought, but we have limited resources to, to enforce the border. Instead of spreading it all out everywhere, let's focus on really easy points of entry you know, double up, triple up the wall, get people up there with guns, get helicopters, drones, all kinds of technology. And then the more inhospitable parts, the deserts, the rivers, these sorts of areas where it's where it's very, very, very difficult to cross. We'll leave those open. So when I when I mentioned about my father, my father crossed uh, four times. He never went through anything like that. 
because when he was crossing, uh, prevention through deterrence hadn't gone into effect. Okay. So for him, it was like, you know, maybe half a day's walk. Uh, some of these journeys now can, can take anywhere between you know, three days to a, to a week to complete. Uh, most of these uh, uh, migrants don't, don't carry enough water or, or food with them, and uh, a lot of them don't, don't, don't make, don't make the, the passage. So this has increased the deaths, and, and people thought, well, once word gets out, people are going to stop trying to cross, and they haven't. And the reason they haven't is because one of the other things that we, that we did was we, we, we signed free trade agreements with Mexico. But those free trade agreements aren't, aren't really necessarily free trade. Uh, the United States still subsidizes a lot of their corn. For, a lot of our corn uh, farmers still get subsidized. So U.S. corn can actually be sold in Mexico without any tariffs, and it's cheaper than the corn that Mexico can produce. Mexico is, you know, the, the original source of corn, and now Mexico imports its corn. It, 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 you know, corn farmers basically it made that sort of life unsustainable. And so what's driving people to not just the United States but to the, to the border region is a, is a need for jobs. Um, although now Mexico's a – their their replacement level is is a, is a, at a, they're at almost replacement level, um, meaning they've got about you know uh, just a little over two births per per, per woman, um, whereas at one point it was about seven. So they they the birth rate has stabilized a little bit. So so Mexico's economy and Mexico's economy is doing a little bit better than it's done. A lot of the the immigrants that we see now come from Central America. And these immigrants are a little bit different than, than the displaced uh, farm workers of Mexico. These immigrants, a lot of these immigrants are fleeing violence. Uh, there's been a lot of violence in Central America. Uh, the, the United States in 2009, uh, with, with, you know, when, when uh, Secretary, or Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was, or once Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, we uh, helped uh, dispose of President Zelaya in, in Honduras. And since then, Honduras has become kind of a hub for uh, for the narcotics trade, so all the all the tra- all, all the drugs that come from Colombia and in South America, they land in Honduras before they come to the U.S. And Honduras right now is one of the most violent places on earth. And the kids there, especially you know, especially the, 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 all the kids, all of them, uh, either have to join gangs or 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 uh, or, or, or you know risk uh, getting killed and so forth. So this was behind. Uh, the surge that we saw a couple of years ago was people basically fleeing violence. If you think about it, the, you know, we, we are responsible for We consume these drugs, and it's been our policy towards Central America that's destabilized that region such that drug cartels now basically control these regions. And uh, so anyway, so, so when you ask, well, what, why are people willing to, to do this, risk their lives um, to cross in these ways? It's because there there really is no alternative. It's it, it's starvation or, or or a violent death basically for a lot of these folks. What do you think is our ethical obligation towards undocumented immigrants? I mean, for the for the most part, I I think we um, you know I so there's two things you can do. There, there there's there's you know we call like a positive and, and negative uh, rights, and I think we we owe them at least some negative rights, and then by by that I mean. So there's there's positive rights as in like things you can give somebody. Should we give them money? Should we, you know, should we give them a house? Should we give them a, a job? These sorts of well, 
we might we might not owe undocumented immigrants entitlements, although I think we do. But someone might say, well, maybe we don't owe them entitlements. I, I think at the very least we we shouldn't get in we shouldn't get in undocumented immigrants' ways. And by, and by that I mean most undocumented immigrants can find jobs for themselves, can can do things for themselves. It's really the current policy that we have that really undermines their ability to to sort of succeed. So I, I think it, it and it's I think my my position is. It's actually very close to a libertarian position. Just leave them, you know, leave them alone. You know, or, or, or don't get in there. Don't get in immigrants' way. So don't restrict immigration. Uh, if you have undocumented immigrants in the United States and we have in-state tuition, let them have in-state tuition, uh, driver's licenses, these sorts of things. So not. So what I'm. But what I mean, I don't know if it's going to be clear. But what I mean is, that you don't necessarily have to get entitlements to undocumented immigrants. But there are certain things that that we owe immigrants that I think everyone could agree. That we owe immigrants that are that are pretty basic, and by denying them these things, we are just basically denying them the opportunity to to have a a, a decent life. Not even a um, you know, not, not, I'm not talking about a, a very uh, extravagant life, but just even a decent life. So that's I mean, so that's what I think. I think ethically, we we owe a lot to to global poor in general, but especially to to people who are um, basically unprotected uh, by the Cause as most undocumented immigrants currently are. So you spend time living on, on both coasts, on the East Coast and the West Coast. So uh, if you had to choose, which coast is the best coast? Oh, the West Coast. Easy. <laughs> West Coast. <laughs> Why? Everything. Better hip-hop, better beaches, better weather. Did you really just say better hip-hop? I did indeed. I did indeed. Okay, I'm gonna let you get away with that, but I would say before 2005, that was incorrect. I don't know. The Yay area was always, you know, always bringing it strong. You know, Mac Dre. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't just mean like you know commercial hip hop. Like it's just straight up even underground hip. I always thought the the Bay Area was uh was just where it's at. You know, and by the way, I'm from Southern California, so so admitting that something in Northern California is better than Southern California is, is a hard thing for me to admit. Okay. But the Bay Area was always a, I thought it was great. E40, Too Short, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, speaking of rappers, because uh, I saw a video on your website uh, reading a paper about hip hop under a hip hop beat. Who would you say is your favorite rapper? Cypress Hill is is probably my my favorite group. Um, and the reason is, so I got into hip hop at a very young age. Cool uh, Modi, uh, Big Daddy Kane, L Cool J. I had all their uh, basically bootleg tapes. I would buy them uh, in Tijuana because they were like two bucks each. But I love the Fat Boys. But finally, when like there was a Latino group, because I remember thinking like in a, a NWA, for example, I'd listen to, to this hip hop and, and it would it resonate with me. And I remember thinking like, well, my community's kind of going through a lot of this stuff too. To finally see like rappers that like look Latino like me and spoke Spanish, you know, in the, in, in their rhymes, and uh, we're just proud to be Chicano, um, you know. But to this day, I've got a love love for uh, for Cypress Hill. Although I, I don't think anything's been quite as good as their first album, Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill. But uh, but yeah, I'll taste Cypress Hill. And last but not least, can you give us or or tell us about one Latino Latina philosopher whose work just just touches you? And perhaps you can leave us with your favorite quote of their work. Oh, that's a, another, another one where I'm going to have a hard time just saying one. So I, I would say right now I think there's about four um, Latino, Latino philosophers that are 
that are doing really good stuff. Grant Silva, Tim uh, Diaz, Carlos Alberto Sanchez, and Joseph Orozco. Um, I, I think all of them are doing great stuff on immigration uh, from different perspectives. And uh, what if I what if I leave you with with two other new books? I really want to promote their stuff. So okay. so Carlos Sanchez has a new book called Contingency and Commitment, and uh, Joseph Orozco's got a new book called Toppling the Melting Pot. So uh, so read them, and and I think they. They're different from me. These folks do pragmatism and, and, and phenomenology, and when I read them, I, I, I get inspired in the sense that I feel that my sort of analytic political philosophy is really missing something, and, and, and they add to it. Jose, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you very much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.